If you have your Bible, if you could look in 2 Samuel chapter 23, or if you have an electronic device, uh, if you have a Bible app, I'd like for you to own that chapter, if you don't mind. It's more than just uh, bringing a message tonight. I'd like for you to have this to look back on. Um, First and 2 Samuel are some of my favorites. I don't know if you've fallen in love with those two books or not, but they are the stories of King David. And uh, actually, when you go into 1 Samuel, you meet Saul, and uh, the first king of Israel, and you see why God rejected him. But then God raised up King David, and then in 2 Samuel, you have pretty much the record of David's kingdom. And you have the good and the bad, and unfortunately, in some cases, you have the ugly. If you're looking for the story of David and Bathsheba, you'll find it in chapter 11 of the book that we're in tonight. But most of the time, David's story is a glorious story. And I love it because, uh, you know, we, from time to time, even today, we talk about God's stories. Or, or when things happen that only God can do, we say, well, it's a God thing. Well, the story of David is a God thing. When you look at his story, it's, it's really interesting and really unique on its face. David started out a shepherd boy and he wound up a king. And when I say he started a shepherd boy, it doesn't really do justice to the obscurity in which David grew up because um, not only was he a shepherd boy, he was the youngest of eight sons. Now, in our American democratic culture, it really doesn't matter what your birth order is. You can grow up to be a president, regardless if you're the youngest daughter, the oldest daughter, youngest son, oldest son. But in the land of primogenitor, uh, or the time of primogenitor, as David grew up in, if you were the eighth son of eight, not much was expected of you. You were just sort of the runt of the family. And you certainly see that bear out when Samuel does come to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king, and they didn't even bring David to the celebration. So he starts off not only a shepherd boy, but the most obscure of obscure shepherd boys and winds up a king. Now that's rare in the Bible and it's rare in history because usually in order to wind up a king, you have to start out a prince, right? I mean, now Prince Charles, he may get there someday. He's been waiting a long time, hasn't he? Unfortunately, he's got really good genetics. But God was with him. And David, of course, is a special character in the Bible because when Jesus came, he came calling himself the son of David. Now, I believe that Jesus identified strongly with David as a person, but of course you know, those of you who study the Bible know that there is what we call the Davidic covenant. There are several covenants in the Bible. There's the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah that he would never destroy the earth by water again. There's the Abrahamic covenant that you see in Genesis chapter 12 and again in chapter 15 where God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I know back last October when I stood here and we celebrated the 70th birthday of Israel, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. But the Davidic covenant might be perhaps the most important of all the covenants before the new covenant, the New Testament, because God came to David and said that he was going to build a dynasty for King David and that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. And when the last king of Judah was taken off the throne before the Babylonians took uh, Judah away captive from that moment on, which was roughly uh, 586 B.C., Israel, Judah, did not have another king, 
But since God had made the promise to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever, then the name for the Messiah was often called the son of David. In other words, there would be a descendant of King David who ultimately would be the Messiah, which is why the early genealogies that we find, uh, like I say, early in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew is so very important because what we'll discover when we read those is that Jesus' genealogy is settled. In fact, I want to make, make it real clear that no other Jewish person in the world would have a clear right to the throne other than Jesus because today no, there is no lineage that can be proven back to King David. But with Jesus, it can be. In Matthew's gospel, we have Joseph's genealogy. And although Jesus was not the biological child of Joseph, he would have been Joseph's child of record so that when anyone looked back through his father's genealogy, it would trace all the way back to King David. But when you get into Luke's gospel, you have Jesus' natural genealogy going back through his biological mother, Mary. It is interesting that both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David. Uh, Joseph through David's son, Solomon, who would ultimately succeed him to the throne. And through Mary, he was a descendant of David's son, Nathan. So the story of David is very important and wonderful uh, story. It's a God story. And, and, and yet tonight, even though we're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, this is not a sermon about David. David is coming to the end of his long-lived, mostly successful life. Like many of you today, I watched the funeral of President Bush, and he was blessed of God to live a long life. And through the last uh, 24, 48 hours, Americans have looked back on his life and celebrated his legacy. And that's a beautiful thing. And as we get to the end of 2 Samuel, that's sort of what you see happening with David. It's a celebration of his life. In fact, David's last words are in this section of 2 Samuel. But the, chapter, the, the section of chapter 23 that I want us to look at tonight, as spectacular as his victories were and as great as David was, it is not the celebration of David the hero. It is a celebration of the heroes who served him. That's where I want to take us to tonight. I don't know about you, but I want to be a hero in my life. I don't mean by that I want to be famous. I don't necessarily, I don't want accolades or anything like that. I just want my life to make a difference, don't you? We live in such a culture of ease and celebrity and silliness where people today are looked at as important sometimes for doing the silliest, most ridiculous, totally unimportant thing. Does the name Kardashian ring a bell? <laughs> silly, silly, stupid stuff. At some point, I think reasonable people need to ask, isn't there a place for those who make a difference? Those whose lives on planet Earth, whether they live for 10 years or 110 years, those whose lives leave this world a better place. And not just for friendship and for a helping hand and all those things that are so important, but for me, I want to make a difference for Jesus Christ. Because at the end of this life, all that matters is whether or not a person knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and what they did for him. Because 
Someday we will give an answer for these lives and the opportunities that we're given. And, and I want to be a hero in that sense. So tonight, for the few moments that you and I spend together, I'd like for us to examine this section of Scripture. And I'm really clear on this. Somebody will say, well, Mark, the only hero here is Jesus. And in the sense of the word, I, I get that. But let's look at this. There's no doubt about it. David was the king. This book is about King David. There was only one King David, and nobody could take David's place. But I noticed that Scripture does make room for the heroes who serve the king. And when you read the Bible, there is only one Jesus and nobody can take his place and he is the hero with no comparison. But while there is no other king, there is room for heroic deeds in the service of the king. If you want to find that in the Bible, well, it's throughout scripture, but it's especially in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Because when you open that chapter, some have called that the, hero, the uh, hall of fame of the Bible. There are women and men in that chapter who, who exceeded expectations and wound up as heroes, not because they were heroes in and of themselves, but because they were heroes who served the king. And so tonight, I want to take you to the last part of 2 Samuel chapter 23 for just a very few moments tonight to look at Heroes in the service of the king. I got to tell you something, and this is, this is kind of embarrassing for me to tell you this. I was going to call tonight's sermon Heroes, and I felt led to preach to you from this chapter. And, and I understand how the term heroes could be applied here, because in 2 Samuel 23, it says, these are the names of David's mightiest warriors. But the more I studied, the more I wrote, I realized that I had the right scripture, but I had the wrong title. Because more than the story of heroes, are you ready for this? This is a story of battles. It is a story of battles. Strange, isn't it? We'd like to be heroes based on what we accomplish. And yet, hear me well. When the last chapter of your life is written, your true greatness will probably not depend on what you've accomplished. It will depend on how you face the battles that you faced. Do you hear me? Let me just say that one more time because it's so counter to, as I said, our celebrity craze culture today. We would like to have more, know more, and do more. And yet, if you have true greatness in your life, which I believe you do, it will probably be defined by how you face the battles that you faced. Five years ago, Last July, I stood right here with my dad's casket in front of me. My dad pastored the same church for 50 years, and he came and was our care pastor for 13 years. So much of who I am, humanly speaking, I owe to my dad. Even though we're pastors, we go about it very differently. We pastored very different kinds of churches. And when I stood to preach his funeral, both here and in Texas, when we preached it, I preached it on Monday after I preached it on Thursday here, or Friday here, rather. I focused not so much on my dad's achievements, but the progress and the growth that he made all throughout his life. And how he faced the battles and the struggles that he faced. When the last chapter of your life is written, your true greatness will be probably told in the stories of battles of stuff you would not have chosen to go through. 
the things that if the truth were told, you would have given anything in your life to have avoided. It may be how you handled that divorce that crushed your life. It may be in how you dealt with the injustice that made you feel less than human. It may be in the trouble that you had with your children and yet you managed to continue to love them unconditionally. One more time, I just want to say this before we get into it tonight. The story of your greatness will not be in what you achieve. People will read right past that. It will be in how you handle the battles. I've, life, I've been a lifelong study of, student of history. I read every biography I could get my hands on. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that most of the time, it isn't that heroes make battles, but battles make heroes. It's not that a hero goes around and search for a battle. It's oftentimes an ordinary woman goes out to face life and a battle comes up and she takes on a, an enemy she never thought she would take on. But out of it comes a story of a hero. Lincoln would have been just another nondescript 19th century president whose names the rest of which we can't remember. He would have been just another nondescript 19th century president if it hadn't been for the Civil War. Winston Churchill is widely deemed to be the most influential, most resourceful leader of the 20th century. He probably would never even been prime minister of Great Britain if it had not been for World War II. And neither man would have chosen either battle. I preach this tonight because I realize I pastor a church with wonderful people who are going through many battles. And I, too, have been through some of those battles, and I know what the temptation is. The temptation is when I get out of this battle that I can start living again. When I get out of this battle, I can start being productive again. I just want to comfort your heart with the reality one more time that the story of your greatness may probably be in how you handle the battles of your life. With that in mind, I want us to look in 2 Samuel chapter 23 of three heroes. And the more you look at this, the more you see that it wasn't so much the hero that made the battle, but the battle that made the hero. And these are three unusual battles, and I wouldn't take your time with it tonight if I didn't feel like there's spiritual significance for you and me in these three stories. And we'll go through them pretty quickly. Here's the first one. It's in verse 10. We hear in this verse about a man named Eleazar who stood his ground and struck down the Philistines until his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Now, this is a strange story because it's the story of a man who fought a battle and he swung the sword so much that after a while he couldn't get his hand off the hilt of the, or the handle of the sword. I love this verse because it tells us just basically two things. The first thing it tells us is Eleazar's hand grew tired and eventually froze, or if you have an old King James Version, I still like this word, his hand claved to the sword. Basically what happened is Eleazar picked up the sword to do battle and he just kept on fighting. And when he was tempted to quit, he thought, I'll just fight a little while longer. But after a while he noticed something. He noticed that his hand wouldn't let go of the sword. 
When I went to college, I went to a, a college that prepared for ministry, and our president was a longtime pastor and, and a great leader. He was, his sermon that he was most known for all over the world was on this text. His, his title of his sermon was, His Hand Clave to the Sword. And I remember Dr. Oldham preaching it. I heard him preach it many times. He had two points to the, to the sermon. He said, Eleazar took hold of the sword. That's point one. Point two was, in time, the sword took hold of Eleazar. There are challenges in your life and my life that it's hard after a while to know where the fabric of the challenge ends and where our own fabric begins. This isn't popular today. Today, the idea is when it stops being fun, you check out. But Eliezer did. Now, here's what stands out to me about this. Nothing here says that Eliezer is anything special. There's nothing here that talks about how strong he was, just that he refused to quit. And after a while, his hand and the sword were one. O and E. Recently, I was speaking to a group of pastors and church leaders. And before I realized that I admitted something I don't think I'd ever admitted before. It's hard for me to realize that so much time has passed. I'm in my 34th year here, and I can't believe it. I barely believe I'm 34 years old, much less. I mean, I feel it this week, but most time I think I'm, I feel like I'm about 34. But it's an unusual thing to be in a church pastor for one place for that length of time. The standard tenure for a pastor is somewhere around three years. And so I guess being sort of at the elder statesman part of my life, younger leaders are asking me more and more, what's it like to stay in one place 34 years? And in this time of speaking to this group of pastors and church leaders, I was asked a lot of questions about that. And one young pastor said, weren't you ever tempted to go somewhere else? I said, are you kidding? I was tempted a few times to go anywhere else <laughs> when things were tough. And honestly, when I left Texas, I don't know that I thought I would be here for the rest of my life. In fact, I thought I wouldn't. I can still remember real well the last day in Texas before I moved up here. You know how Texans are. All of us are arrogant. Someone said you can always tell a Texan. You can't tell them anything, but you can always tell a Texan. And I always figured I would go somewhere else. I didn't know. But when things got tough here through the years, and thankfully that's not been the case for a long time, but it's like in the relocation where we moved 12 miles and it was impossible. It was eight year process and it was impossible for seven years and 51 weeks and that's the truth. And it was unpopular and difficult and challenging. There was a lot of ugly stuff back then. It's just anytime you lead, anytime you do anything that requires bold steps, it's gonna have some, there are gonna be some really, really tough days. And many times during those times of toughness, I would be tempted to do something else or to leave or go somewhere else. But what I wound up admitting, and I don't think I've ever admitted this before, but when things got so tough, I thought, well, I can't leave now. 
I'm, I'm gonna, I started this, I'm going to see it through. I'm, I'm not going to lead... I'm not going to lead a church into doing something and leave halfway through. I'm going to see it all the way through. And the honest truth is, for the last 34 years, I've been doing that. I've like, well, I'm going to see this through. Well, now I'm going to see that through, and I'm going to see this through. And one day I realized the sword that I'd taken hold of had taken hold of me, that I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Strange, isn't it? It wasn't the good times that brought me to that conclusion. It was what happened during those difficult times. It was what happened during the battles. When you're telling your grandchildren about God, chances are you're not going to be telling him about the days where you woke up just feeling sunshiny, turned on the radio, and your favorite music was on the radio, and you just had a great day and nothing bad happened. That's not what you're going to tell your grandchildren about. You're going to tell them about your back being against the wall. And God showed up, and you found out that it was more than just a Sunday school lesson or a sermon or a Bible study, that you were in the battle. And yeah, you may, like me, just be an ordinary man or an ordinary woman, but you took hold of the sword. And over time, the sword took hold of you. If it's in the struggles that the sword takes hold of us, why does that work? Well, I love this verse. A few moments ago, I told you that there were two things this verse says. The first thing that it says is Eliezer stuck, stood his ground, struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. But look at the second thing it says. It says the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Do you know, I can't lay claim to any of the victories won here. I can lay claim to standing my ground. But I can't lay claim to the victories. I just stood my ground and held on to the sword, and the Lord came and won the victories. I'm talking to some of you that are fighting a battle right now, and you don't know if you're going to win or not because it's just what you're dealing with is so rough. Just, I, forgive me for, te- for breaking a sentence. I try not to get into symbolism very much because, frankly, I want you to know when God says something and you're going through a crisis, you can just hold on to it. But there are symbols in the Bible that are almost impossible to avoid, and this is one of them. Those of you who study your Bible, when you hear of the sword... What, 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 what is it that stands? What is it? The symbol, the sword is a symbol of what? The word of God, right? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Listen, if you're going through a crisis tonight, take hold of the word of God. And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover that the word of God will take hold of you. And at some point, it'll be hard to know where your fabric stops and the fabric of the word of God begins. And that's how you'll get through the battle. You won't get through the battle because you brought the victory. You'll just get hold, you'll get through the battle because you took hold of the word of God and you stood your ground and then God came and brought the victory. Now I like this, and this is what we've seen at New Spring. It says the Lord brought a great victory. 
I don't know that God's looking for superstars today. He's just looking for women and men like Eleazar, who ordinary people, they just won't quit. They just won't quit. I mean, they'll just stay there and hold on to the sword till the sword takes hold of them. They may not be extraordinary. They may not be the greatest soldier out there, but they'll just stand their ground and hold on to the word of God. And God worked a great victory. Okay, here's the second one. <laughs> Boy, there's some strange stuff in this chapter. Now there's this dude named Benaniah, and I like him. I'm looking forward to meeting this guy when I get to heaven. On a snowy day, he chased a lion down into the pit and killed it. Well, the headline <laughs> at the end of that day is Ben and I killed a lion. Now, that's pretty remarkable on his face because a lion is a powerful... There's a reason why a lion is the king of the, the jungle. A lion is the only animal that I know of strong enough that can just take his paw and slap a human's head and crush the skull. And a lion's teeth are so strong it can bite through any bone. So it's a, it would be something to get into a fight with a lion. But Ben and I didn't just get into a fight with a lion. He got into a fight with a lion on a snowy day. Now, I don't know anything about fighting a lion hand to hand, you know, hand to paw, but I do believe that if you were fighting a lion, you would not want to be slip sliding around on the ice, would you? And then the third thing that we see was he got into a fight with a lion on a snowy day in a pit. Now, if I'm in a fight with a lion, I don't want to be in a pit because I can't get out. I've lived this one so many times that I feel this better than I can articulate it. If we saw the symbolism of the word of God in the sword, you can't help but see the symbolism in the lion because the Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus said, to Simon Peter, the enemy wants to sift you like wheat. And Peter would write later, Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When you're in a spiritual warfare, and some of you know already what I'm talking about, the rest of you need to just file this away. When you get into heavy spiritual warfare, Satan won't just hit you in one area. When he comes after you, he'll try to hit you in more areas than one. You know, see, if I'm Ben and I, it's like, you know what? I, maybe I can fight a lion, just, just a lion. If that's the only problem I've got is a lion, maybe I can do that. But to have to fight a lion on a snowy day, I don't know that I can handle it. To fight a lion on a snowy day in a pit... One of the greatest challenges in the Christian life is to fight a spiritual battle and to be attacked from more than one side. You know, you're trying to deal with one of your kids or your marriage and then your health begins to be a problem and then you have a problem at work and you know what it's like when you have all those things coming against you at one time. When I read about Ben and I being a hero, and, and, and here's the thing, the word of God doesn't waste any words. I mean, if he had just 
beat a lion, we wouldn't even pay any attention to this text. But the reason why we're paying attention to it was he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I can't help but think about one of the best friends I have in the ministry tonight. He pastors a great church. He, he's done a phenomenal job in just the last few years leading this church. It's very similar to New Spring. He's in a smaller community, but he's having, the church is having an enormous impact. They've done so many of the things that we've done here at New Spring. I got the biggest kick when I preached up there the first time, and I went into the mall. And in the mall, they have light boards with Cosmo, you know, our, our Cosmo that we developed here at New Spring. And this church is just having a great impact. But a year ago, my pastor friend came down with stage four cancer. And he went through a long regimen of chemotherapy. And while he was going through chemotherapy, they had rented this building. They'd rented space in this mall, and they outfitted it magnificently. 1,500 people attending this church on a weekend, Saturday and Sunday services. And they had done so much to make this a beautiful worship space. I mean, you'd think if you walked into it, you just walked into a magnificent church plant, but it was part of a mall. Well, I don't know what happened with the mall, but somehow they wound up being told, we're sorry, you're going to have to move. And so here he is fighting this battle with cancer and chemotherapy, and he's been told, you're going to have to find a new place. And that they're in the process of doing that right now. But I saw him in October, and the doctor had told him that he's cancer-free. And so he and I spent most of the time talking about what they're doing and the place they're trying to buy and build and how they're going to make all this happen. And, and I just found out last week his cancer came back. Now I want to tell you, that's fighting a lion in a pit on a snowy day. But what I love about this verse is said, he chased the lion down into a pit. In other words, I like this because you know what? If, if it's a snowy day and, and I'm up against all that, I'm thinking the lion is chasing me. But I love this about Ben and I. Ben and I was chasing a lion and he chased it down into the pit and he killed it. Now, what does that mean? Here, the Bible tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And in our lives, from time to time, we're going to be in one of those struggles where we have several things happening at one time. Satan does come against him. By the way, I would like to ask you to pray for my, my preacher friend, would you, and his wonderful wife. They've visited New Spring, and they may be watching tonight, Roy and April Mack, two of the finest, finest servants of God. And I believe God's going to get victory. I believe God's going to raise him up. Finally, and I'll close with this. Here's the last battle. 2 Samuel 23, verse 11. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. It was a bean field. The Israelite army fled. That's kind of interesting. Because under David, the Israelites almost never fled from the Philistines. That's the sort of thing we expect under Saul. 
this is a really rare thing for the Israelites to run away from the Philistines. Why do they do that? Well, again, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste any words. It was a bean field. It wasn't a garrison. It wasn't the high ground. It was a bean field. I mean, I think the Israelites said, you know what, it's just not worth fighting over. It's just a bean field. What difference would it make? Why die for a bean field? But look at verse 12. But Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. I brought this message tonight because I believe God wanted me to bring it. I think that we're dealing with those kinds of battles this evening. And I don't even know where to go with this other than just to tell you what I think it's about and I'll let the Holy Spirit talk to you on this one. What, what, what was it that caused Shammah to hold his ground in a bean field? I think Shammah understood, you let the Philistines have the bean fields, they'll be in the subdivision tomorrow. And this, this one deserves a whole sermon because I look at a whole lot of Christians today who are compromising and giving in and saying, well, what God says about this is not all that important. What God says about sexuality is not all that important. Now, now, boy, when it comes to the plan of salvation, I won't deviate from that. But when, you know, the Bible's kind of backward when it comes to things like living together before marriage or homosexuality or, or you know, white lies. I'll tell you something we better learn real fast, and I don't know, I know, I hope it's not, hope we haven't run out of time as far as American Christianity goes. You let Satan have the bean patch, he'll come for your subdivision tomorrow. And I just look as Christians and say, well, I can give in on this, even though the word of God says this, and I, I just, I'm, I understand times change. I'm going to give in on this. You give in on the bean fields, he'll come for your house tomorrow. I, I think this is a time for us to take hold of the sword like Eleazar. Not to hurt anyone, but just to take hold of the word of God to say, here I stand until God gets the victory. And maybe I'm in a scenario where I'm having to deal with an attack on several fronts, but my God is a great God. If I have to chase a lion into a pit on a snowy day, I'm going to trust God that if he led me to chase this lion, he must have a reason for it. And you know what? I'm not even going to give up a bean field to the devil. I want my life to count for God. I want to be a hero that makes a difference. Thank you very much for being here tonight.